Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everyone is off to a great start to the week. Uh, really looking forward to tonight's show. Um, so many of our shows deal with prehistory, one of my favorite uh, time periods for American history is kind of like that 1830s to 1850s, yeah. Poe's getting started in his career you know, Moby Dick and uh, House of Seven Gables um, are published. Uh, very creative uh, period for literature. Um, Jeff Wilson is returning tonight uh, to integrate both topics. Um, and, you know, Jeff and I cover opposite ends of the Ohio River Valley. Uh, occasionally we meet in the middle. Uh, one example was the Hopewell Chillicothe Conference. And you know, Barbara's probably sent back to Illinois. Mark's going to start talking about the meeting with Cheryl and what that led to and what I've had to, uh, or what Barbara's endured. Uh, my discussions about that, but you know, we'll uh, we'll save that for another show. But um, you know, Jeff co-hosted with me uh, one time when uh, uh, Dennis Stone was uh, a guest, and uh, we did another show on uh, the Serpent Mound Summer Solstice. Uh, that might have been around what 2019 or so. Um, Jeff has a 
series out now that is entitled Ancient Monuments uh, Expanded Edition. Um, The original version, Ancient Monuments of the Mississippi Valley, was the Smithsonian's first publication, and it came out in 1848. And it is a class classic reference book for archaeologists. The eagle-eyed drawings are are pretty much ubiquitous. Um, Jeff's uh, series gives us a lot more background on the co-authors, Squire and Davis, and more the -the behind-the-scenes stories. Uh, Jeff is a publisher. He published uh, uh, Jason Gerald and Sarah Farmer's uh, The Ages of the Giants. And you can learn more about Jeff by going to uh, serpentmoundbooks.com. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Good. How are you, Mark? Oh, I'm I'm fine. I'm uh, really excited about this uh, show. Uh, you know, you have so much information uh, I get into. And, you know, I'm uh, you know probably devote uh, most of the um, two hours to looking at your achievements. But for first of all, I. I we need to talk about your upcoming appearance at the Loveland Frog Man Conference. Um, you know, our buddy Steve Ward is going to be there, so uh, that, that's worth the uh, you know, price of admission there. Uh, you know, be in Steve's presence, but uh, yeah, uh, you and Delcy are uh, going to be there too. So. Uh, uh, what can can you give us a little bit of uh, background on the Loveland Frogman Conference? Uh, when is it going to be there? What you know? What are you going to be doing? So this is the second annual Frogman Conference. I wasn't there last year, so I don't know what happened. Uh, I know that they moved it to a new location. It's still in Loveland, Ohio. Um, It's at the Oasis Conference Center in Loveland, Ohio. This Saturday, March 2nd, uh, doors open at 9.30, and they're open until 6 p.m. And they have uh, over 50 different vendors that are selling all kinds of stuff, and they have a whole room that they're going to have speakers all day. They're going to have like a Pied Piper uh, march with costume participants and all kinds of fun stuff for, for uh, you know, the whole family, I guess. From what I understand, the reason that the Frogman Conference was established is because of a legendary incident that took place in Loveland, Ohio, where a uniformed police officer patrolling at night uh, ran into a person uh, that was uh, like a mixture between a frog and a man. (laughs) And he uh, actually got out and 
fired off a couple of rounds at this thing before it hopped off into a river ravine and, and disappeared. And so uh, it's a paranormal thing. And uh, so the organizers and the sponsors, uh, you know, uh, structured the conference around that, uh, particularly last year. The guy who founded it uh, is a guy by the name of Jeff Craig. May or may not be familiar with Jeff. He um, has created two um, very interesting maps, which you can purchase. One is called the Hidden Ohio Map and Guide, and his most recent one is called Map in Black. And uh, it the they're both these huge fold-out maps of all the paranormal events and locations and weird, uh, you know, kind of things that legendary, you know, things that, that you can put on a map. And his maps, uh, you know, he's been selling those for quite some time. And so he's the organizer of it. Um, I think, I think there were, you know, like a couple thousand people that attended it last year. So I don't know how many people wow. this year, but. He's been a cartographer for like 30 years. I met him oh, almost probably 15 years ago. He was a vendor at the Friends of Serpent Mound's annual summer solstice event. And at the time I met him, he had minted his own Serpent Mound coins. And um, he was selling those at the festival. This is before I think he created his maps. Um, but he, uh, he had reached out to me a few years ago and asked if he could use one of my aerial photographs for the cover of his map in black. And he uh-huh. used a couple of additional map photos from, from other locations for his full United States map of, you know, all the paranormal stuff. He includes <laughs> lots and lots of mounds on there. And, um, so, uh, he called me up and said, Hey, you know, you get this new book out. Uh, why don't you come and and talk at Frogman Festival? I said, Well, I don't have anything to do with Frogman, and I, he said, <laughs> well, That's okay. We got all kinds of different people coming to talk about a range of stuff. So that's why I ended up going there. Um, but, like, you know, it um, sounds sounds like a night light show. Uh, could be, um, but uh, I I had kind of a different, uh, you know, experience about Frogman dating back even farther when I was in college and I was uh, president of the astronomy club in college, my vice president and I and several members of the astronomy club would get together uh, weekly uh, to watch the X-Files. And uh, my vice president of the organization was from Loveland. That's where he, that's where his hometown was from. And one of the X Files episodes in season three, um, the the part of the episode was set in Loveland, Ohio. And so when it, you know, I don't know if you've seen that X Files, but you know, it kind of scrolls that mm-hmm. gives you the location. When that came mm-hmm. up, he went ballistic. Like that's my that's my hometown. That's where I live. And he, we had a discussion about, you know, that whole thing. And, and uh, I told him that I had heard about this love, this frogman, uh, you know, incident that had happened. He'd never heard of it. And he was from there. And so uh, he went home 
on a spring break and he went to the local barber shop where the old time barber was and he asked the barber, you know, while he's getting his hair cut, if he'd ever heard of the Frogman, and they told him all about it. And so he, he didn't he didn't believe it from me, but he heard it from the locals and it turned out that uh the 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 road that this incident took place was maybe about maybe about a thousand feet from where he lived. <laughs> <laughs> and he had no idea that that had happened there, you know, decades earlier. So it's kind of funny. But okay, yeah. So uh, yeah, you you do a lot of rediscovering history, whether it's Frogman or Squire and Davis's work. So mm-hmm. uh, okay, right. and. Uh, yeah, before we uh, segue into uh, your your book, uh, the uh, a conference is this Saturday. Yes. Okay. At, at the uh, 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 what was the venue again? The Oasis. Yeah, it's uh, the Oasis Golf Club, um, which is in Loveland, Ohio. Okay. There you go. Uh, it, uh, is there a website or just Google? There is. I think it's uh, frogmanfestival.org. I got um Sounds cool. Um, okay, let's get into your uh, latest publication. So, um. What was the importance of Squire and Davis's ancient monuments, and you know what what was their reason for writing this classic book that all you know prehistorians use? I'm sure all, all the listeners have seen some. Some of the maps. So, uh, uh, so, so, so let's uh, get, get into a little bit of the background of this important book, and then we'll move into your your book. Uh, well, Squire and Davis's book, um, "Ancient Monuments of the Mississippi Valley," was published in 1848, mid 1848. Uh, it was written by two gentlemen, uh, Ephraim George Squire and Dr. Edwin Hamilton Davis. It was edited by a guy by the name of Joseph Henry, who was the first secretary of the Smithsonian Institution. It was the first publication by the Smithsonian Institution under a series they called Smithsonian Contributions to Knowledge, and this was volume one. The book is uh, a collection uh, the first half of the book is a collection of essentially site survey maps of large um, mound sites throughout mostly Ohio. Uh, there are some from from adjacent states, but not too many. It's mostly from Ohio, even though it mm-hmm. has that title of Mississippi Valley. Um, the two Two of them, uh, Squire and Davis, got started uh, in the town of Chillicothe, Ohio, 
in Ross County, and uh, Squire had moved there in uh, 1845. He came from uh, New York, where he he was from originally. Davis uh, got his medical degree in Ohio. He attended Kenyon College and as an undergraduate, and then he went to the Cincinnati Medical College where he got his degree, and he was from uh, Hillsborough originally. But after he got his medical degree, he went to Bainbridge for a short period of time, and then he moved to Chilcotsy where he set up his medical practice. Um, and, and so he got his start, Davis got his start, excavating mounds when he was at Kenyon College. And that was in the early 1830s. And so he had a good 15 years or so of excavating mounds before Squire ever even showed up in town. Um, And Squire wound up in Chillicothe, Ohio, because uh, he was a newspaper editor and writer, and he had... Done a, he had been an editor and writer at a number of different newspapers in New York and Connecticut. And when he um, when he was at his job uh, in Connecticut, that was for a political newspaper, uh, which he was a kind of an active member in the Whig political party. The mm-hmm. Whigs no longer exist uh, in the United States, but for a while they were one of the two major political parties before the Republican Party was invented. And so he was uh, very, very much opposed to Andrew Jackson and J- Jacksonian Demo- Democrats, essentially. Uh, he had trained um, as a uh, civil engineer, and when he got out of school, uh, it was due directly to uh, Jackson's policies that there were no civil engineering jobs in the United States at the time. Um, for for those that don't remember that period of history, Andrew Jackson was extremely opposed to the federal government spending any money for any infrastructure projects. So did not want the federal government to spend money on roads, not on bridges, not on canals, not on anything. And of course, uh, that's what you need civil engineers for. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that, uh, that Jackson sort of ended federal spending on all of that stuff meant that nobody needed civil engineers really. And so, uh, you know, Squire never was able to practice uh, doing Look for another job. He ended up becoming uh, an editor for uh, a newspaper. He uh, got his start with a, with another political newspaper um, in the 18 early 1840s was when the 
labor labor movement began in the United States. The very first labor organized, uh, you know, group was called the Mechanics Union in uh, New York City, and they organized because the state of New York at the time was using prison labor to do what mechanics were doing. And so it was undercutting their wages and their opportunity for jobs. And so this mechanics union formed in New York to essentially lobby politically uh, the state of New York's government uh, to, you know, end that policy of using prison labor, forced prison labor. And as part of that political process, they, uh, formed uh, a newspaper to essentially lobby their political position. And Squire was hired to be the editor of the Mechanics Union newspaper in New York, which was uh, in Albany, New York. And so he kind of got started in politics through that labor union side. And uh, this is kind of an interesting sort of side thing is that before, you know, uh, Karl Marx and his partner Engels began writing in Europe about, uh, you know, labor uh, and uh, labor issues and, you know, developing their ideas of communism and things like that, uh, Squire actually wrote the history of labor uh, in both the United States and about a dozen uh, European countries, and he gave a couple of big uh, educational lectures slash seminars to unions that were developing in New York and in Baltimore. And and this is like a couple of years before Marx and Engels began their work on labor. Um, Squire was already, you know, down that road. Well, uh, in the run-up to the election, 1844 election, that's when he got his job in Connecticut for a Whig newspaper. And, of course, the Whigs lost again. Um, and so after the election, uh, he essentially was out of job. Um, and so he got two job op- uh, offers, one in Baltimore through his ties through labor, um, and the other one was in Chillcoffee, Ohio, to be the editor of the weekly paper in Chillcoffee. And he took the one in Chillcoffee, even though the Baltimore paper was, you know, had a higher circulation, it was, you know, more notable, because Squire refused to work in a slave state. And Maryland was a slave state at the time. Uh And so he... um, you know, stood on his principle, and he went to chill coffee. When he got to chill coffee, it was about a day or so before, you know, he started to see all the mounds around in chill coffee because chill coffee was full of mounds. And yep. uh, he started asking around, you know, and Davis was the local expert. Davis had been there for a long time, and he had been investigating mounds and had a big artifact collection and so on and so forth. And so Davis really, you know, was already hard at work on studying that stuff when Squire came along. Now, 
at the time that they started in 1845, late 1845, um, started their partnership together. Uh, Davis was 31 years old and Squire was 24. People don't really put that in their heads when they began that work as fairly young men. Um, Squire didn't know really much about anything uh, in terms of archaeology, but he was enthusiastic and interested. Davis, you know, scientist, medical doctor, you know, he was the guy that paid for everything. He had the means to pay for all the excavations. They actually did very little of the work themselves. They hired people to dig for them. None of those people have ever been credited for any of the work that they did. Um, so we don't, we don't even know the names of all the people that they hired to do all of the work for them. But uh, Squire, because of his civil engineering background, made most of uh, or drew many of the drafts for the maps of the, in the book. In the second half of the book, all of the stuff relating to the artifacts that were found, almost all of that is entirely, you know, uh, Davis's work. But um, at the time, there was not a lot known about the prehistory of the United States, um, nor were a whole lot of people interested in that subject. There were no professional archaeologists, uh, you know, at the time. Nobody was getting paid at a university to teach archaeology or anything like that. There were not. There wasn't really uh, well developed techniques for excavating. Uh, you know, to no no scientific discipline built around that, and so they worked together to try to piece together what was considered, you know, a, a huge question, um, um, you know, who built all this stuff? No, there was no carbon dating at the time. There was no means of, of understanding how old these things were. There were very few people before Squire and Davis that had even tried to take on the question. Um, and so the idea that they would put together this enormous uh, book to discuss all of the findings that they had, um, that was, you know, uh, a bit of a pioneering effort. And mm-hmm. uh, so they, they get credited for that often. Um, today, if you ask uh, modern archaeologists about this book, they'll say, yes, it's a pioneering effort. But uh, it's totally racist. And the reason that they come to that conclusion is because Squire and Davis um, kind of researched, uh, you know, historical accounts of when the first settlers arrived, asking the, the Native Americans who were living here at the time about the mounds. And in, and in almost every circumstance, uh, no matter what tribe uh, you know was asked, they all said, oh, the mounds were already here before we arrived, and you know we didn't have anything to do with them." That's largely what all of the early interactions said, and so they, you know, were looking for well, who who would be the suspects uh, for for uh, you know building all of this stuff if it wasn't the Native Americans that were encountered at the time. 
that today is, um, you know, considered a racist idea because uh, we kind of have learned over time through looking at carbon dating studies and DNA studies and that sort of thing that all, all of these mounds were built by prehistoric Native Americans. Um, you know, so we might not be able to attribute them to any specific tribe, but uh, the tribes were all descended from the people that built all this stuff originally. So that's, that's uh, you know, kind of the, the general thrust of their book. Um, the the uh, maps are what has really stood the test of time largely uh, because mm-hmm. many of the sites that they mapped out are no longer in existence today. They've been plowed under or these places have been developed. Um, Neighborhoods, know. railroad tracks yeah. going through them. Right, exactly. And so a number of archaeologists over the past 175 years since this book has come out have used this book uh, repeatedly for those maps and those illustrations that were in there, um, almost as if this book was the primary source document. And uh, how I got involved with with uh, reprinting this book as an expanded edition was because for many years I've been working on a, a very comprehensive volume about Serpent Mound. And Serpent Mound was one of the locations in that, that got their first published appearance in in uh, Squire and Davis's book. They had a very detailed, uh, you know, sort of illustration map uh, overhead view of Serpent Mound in their book. It was the first published account of it. They wrote about five paragraphs of it. And I went back to their original account to try to kind of fact check them. Um, they made several sort of factual errors in their five paragraphs that they wrote about Serpent Mound. But one of the things that I uh, realized about their published illustration uh, was that they didn't actually make the illustration. And I know that seems like a strange thing to to say uh, because for anybody that's familiar with this book or have seen the maps – uh, reproduced in thousands of different places. Mm-hmm. The people who are always given credit for these illustrations are Squire and Davis, right. it's in Squire and Davis's book. But they didn't—they didn't, they didn't uh, make any of the illustrations in their book. They, the uh, Smithsonian hired two artistic teams to produce all the illustrations in the book. There are two different kinds of illustrations in the book. One is that uh, there are the full-page map illustrations, and those are lithographs. And they hired a lithographic art team out of New York City uh, by the name of Saronian Major uh, to do the lithographs. And then all the smaller illustrations, uh, you know, there's over 200 of those, there, those were done by woodcut engraving team by uh, the name Nathaniel Orr and James Richardson, also out of New York City. 
And so when you look at any of the illustrations from this book, uh, they're either Saronian Major's illustrations or or in Richardson's illustrations. And you have to understand um, the printing technology in 1848 to understand why this would even be important to uh, to consider. The way in which lithographs work is a lithographer will take a, a sheet of uh, stone and they will cover that stone with a wax uh, covering and then they will receive an illustration that they then have to copy onto that uh, stone surface by carefully using utensil to scrape away the uh, wax and they have to do that in mirror reverse to try to replicate the original drawing there's no xeroxing back then you know nothing like that Mm -hmm. so you hire a group to try to reproduce that in mirror reverse so when they're done with the scraping away the wax they apply a um an acid, a weak acid to that surface, it doesn't erode the wax, but it will etch the illustration into the stone's surface. Then they wash that off, they apply their ink, and bam, they stamp that on the paper, and it comes out the right way, you know, uh, the reverse way on the paper. Um, And so oftentimes the original drawings that were uh, produced by you know who, who, any number of individuals, um, oftentimes details are changed between the original drawing and the final print publication, and that is certainly the case in, with ancient monuments. And it's not something that anybody had ever considered uh, looking at before. Uh, I decided when I realized that that serpent mound illustration in ancient monuments was a lithograph, I went on a hunt for the original drawing. And, you know, I took a chance, you know, it's kind of like trying to find a needle in a haystack after 175 years, what are the chances that that still exists somewhere? And uh, not only did I find it, that serpent mound drawing, I found probably about 90 to 95% of all of the other original draft drawings for this book. They'd never been published before. They'd never been cited before by the archaeological community, but they exist, most of them exist in a collection at the Library of Congress. And uh, so during the pandemic, is when I went uh, to kind of study this, um, everything was shut down. You couldn't access any archives or anything like that. But I worked with the curators uh, at the Library of Congress uh, and the librarians there, um, and they figured out a way that I could get access to this material back in 1971 Uh, the Congressional Photo Duplication Service photographed this collection on uh, rolls of positive film, like a film strip, if you remember those back in the day. And so I was able to get 
access to those through interlibrary loan. They sent them out to my my local library. And then I had to find a way to be able to read these film strips because nobody has the nobody keeps the technology for that around anymore. It's all gone. Um, but my mother in law uh, 25 years ago, was a member of the Adams County Genealogical Society. And 25 years ago, they were getting out of their old film strip reading technology. And uh, she kept the uh, reader for that, which is this big sort of box contraption that uh, has a couple of reels and you feed the, the film in and there's a light bulb and a lens and it projects down onto a, a flat white surface uh, so that you can read this stuff. Um, and we took that into the library, left it there for a few weeks so I could access this stuff. And um, eventually, uh, there, this collection of papers that I was sifting through, I just I didn't know that these pictures would be in there. I just took a uh, you know educated guess that they that there might be something in them. Uh, this is a collection of Squire's uh, original papers. And the collection consists of about 12,000 pages of documents, mostly letters um, that he received and, and, uh, from people, you know, around the world. Because uh, he, you know, later in his life worked for the government and he worked for a whole series of, you know, businesses. And so there's all these collections of all kinds of, stuff that doesn't even relate to this. But on uh, they've eventually sent me 14 total rolls of film, and on roll 12 is where I found the majority of these illustrations. <laughs> so it was a lot of weeks of sifting through, you know, scratch handwriting from, you know, the 1840s and 50s, and uh, eventually, you know, finding, finding this, this material. Once I began to see this stuff, the very first uh, illustration I found was actually a drawing by Davis, not by Squire, but by Davis of Mound City in Chilcothy. And the details on this, um, there are significantly different details on this drawing than what appear in ancient monuments. It's much more detailed, uh, and there are significant differences between the drawing that's in ancient monuments versus uh, Davis's extensive map of it. And that means real world archaeological implications. And so after I saw that very first one, and then I started to find all the rest of them, um, the idea came to me that, well, you know what would be best to, you know, present this material would be to take the original publication and wherever you have one of these map illustrations, insert the original drawing because we don't have the, you know, limitations of 1848 printing technology. We can, you know, digitize the stuff and, and we can, you know, have people see the original map versus the artistic impression that was a lithograph or a woodcut, uh, you know, engraving. And, uh, you know, then archaeologists or other, you know, people that are interested can 
compare these maps for themselves. They can look at the differences and see what they are, and uh, hopefully that would be, you know, helpful to uh, the study of these things. That was the uh, original, you know, general idea. I had no idea it would take me as long as it took me to complete this book. Um, the original book was about 350 pages in length, which everybody says, you know, it's a colossal book. It's, you know, amazing, whatever. I added a thousand pages to that. So it stretched out over three volumes um, in hardcover, two volumes in paperback. And um, many of the original illustrations that I eventually added to the book um, were in color. And so, you know, we made a color hardcover edition with the highest possible quality archival paper so that, you know, this, these volumes will last. Um, and then we made, you know, cheaper black and white uh, paperback editions, uh, you know, because I understand how costly the color hardcover editions are. So I tried to make them as cheap as possible so that other people can, you know, access them. Uh-huh. Uh, but that's, that was sort of the general gist of why I put this together. And it turned out that, that the, you know, I finished it last year, which was the 175th anniversary. So it's the 175th anniversary edition. The reason that that's, you know, even notable or interesting is um, the last big edition that was published uh, was the 150th anniversary edition. The Smithsonian published that version um, in, the, in 1998. Um, the prior major uh, reproduction of the book was by Harvard. And they did the 125th anniversary edition, but didn't look like anybody was going to put a 175th anniversary edition out there. So, you know, now we have one. And, and it has all of this additional material, all of the original source documents from, you know, dozens of dozens of original surveyors, not, not Squire and Davis, but work that Squire and Davis used uh, for their book. They used work that had been done by dozens and dozens of other people. And um, none of those people really got credit for their work in ancient monuments. And so I, you know, provide little biographies of all of these people. And you have the original source maps and illustrations by these other people, um, many of which are more detailed than what Squire and Davis put together. Many of the descriptions of the mounds written by these original people that had surveyed are better descriptions than what Squire and Davis provided in ancient monuments. So it's a very, you know, rich historical work um, from that standpoint, I think. And and 95% of everything that, that I added to the book has never been published before had never been cited before by the archaeological community. Okay, so we'll come back to that in uh, um, a few minutes. You know, you're covering a little bit of, um, you know, like the um, uh, Cerrone and Major who courier and uh, odds. Okay, okay. So, uh, yeah, 
Yeah, it, uh, it, the, those two lithographers, uh, Napoleon Cerrone and Henry Major, they got their start by serving as apprentice artists for Nathaniel Courier at Courier and Eyes, the famous, you know, Christmas card uh, lithographic company. Uh, you wow, know, they're okay. mentioned in, you know, the Christmas songs, uh, Courier and Eyes. Um, and so they eventually, after they became accomplished lithographers, they struck out on their own and created their own uh, business in New York City. And they actually became somewhat notable because – um, they kind of struck out on their own during the Mexican-American War. The entirety of Squire and Davis's partnership took place during the Mexican-American War. Um, and, you know, it, that book wasn't written, their book wasn't written in a political vacuum. Um, the, the changes that were taking place in the United States at that period of time, that um, you know, 1848 election uh, was the first one where the idea of um, manifest destiny was first coined and used in the, okay. in the political campaigns of that presidential election. And that was the impetus for the idea that well, we're going to take Texas and we're going to take New Mexico and we're going to take Arizona and we're going to take Southern California and we're going to take parts to of Colorado you know, yep. from Mexico. Uh, that that we you know that manifest destiny idea was happening during the time that Squire and Davis were were writing. When they began writing their book, there were no states in the United States east of the uh, west of the Mississippi River. Um, you know, the there was still the Iowa Territory and the Wisconsin Territory at the time. You know, the, the the idea of the Western states, Ohio was one of the Western states. You know, uh, uh -huh. states that were west of the Appalachian Mountains were were considered the West. You know, um, and so that's kind of the background of of uh, you know the time in which they wrote their book. But uh, Napoleon Cerrone and Henry Major became somewhat notable and famous because they did several lithographs of the battles that were taking place during the Mexican-American War. One of their famous um, uh, lithographs, which I include in the book, in the, in, in the introduction that I wrote, uh, is titled The Storming of Chapultepec which uh, was a battle that took place in September of 1847 where the Americans had m marched all the way down to Mexico City and uh, Chapultepec was this sort of um, fort that where they trained Mexican officers and it sat up on a top of a, of a very high hill. And the Americans uh, stormed that fort. It was one of the last sort of holdouts, uh, the Americans encountered very little resistance in the Mexican army when they marched down there. And, um, you know, we could have taken all of Mexico, uh, you know, from that war, but uh, there was some restraint, I guess. Uh, and, you know, we only took Mexico's northern territories instead. Uh, you know, that was all set out during the Treaty of 
Guadalupe Hidalgo. Um, so, you know, they, the, at the time, these would have been like, you know, news broadcasts. People got a chance to see the battle taking place through the vision of the artwork that Cerrone and Major and others were putting out there, um, you know, uh, with news articles. That was, you know, the the way people got their news of, of the battles and such. Um, Napoleon Cerrone, uh, you know, was a very interesting character. He later uh, switched uh, from being a lithographer. He kind of saw, saw the handwriting on the wall as technology was improving. Uh, one of those technologies was the beginning of photography. And so he uh-huh. became a photographer. He uh, studied photography, um, and he ended up getting several patents for photographic equipment he developed. He oh, wow. uh, became very famous in his own right because he photographed um, most of the famous people that lived in, in along the East Coast of the United States at the time, people like Mark Twain, Tesla, mm-hmm. you know, uh, all the actors and actresses of the day, they all went and got their portraits done by Napoleon Cerrone. And um, he eventually was involved in a, in a court case that went all the way to the Supreme Court. And it's a court case that set a precedent that still exists today, a very important uh, copyright precedent. Um, What had happened was um, uh, Napoleon Cerrone uh, did a series of portraits of the author Oscar Wilde. And Oscar Wilde became one of the most famous people in the world in, in his day, partly uh-huh. because of the photographs uh, that, that were taken by Napoleon Cerrone. They constructed this image of Oscar Wilde as this bohemian artist. And uh-huh. uh, Cerrone had staged all of that um, in his studio. Uh, he carefully crafted all of that stuff. Well, a lith- another lithographic company took some of his photographs and they created lithographs from those photographs and sold several hundred thousand of them. Uh, Cerrone sued them uh, over copyright. And uh, the lithographic company said, you can't copyright photos because it's just the output of a mechanical device. And Cerrone argued, no, no, that's not the case. the photographer dresses the set. He dresses the model. He frames the photo. He lights the image. He creates that artistically. And uh, this, this case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court agreed with Cerrone that, and ever since, copyright has been extended to photography. And so, you know, the guy that did the lithographs and ancient monuments uh, is responsible for getting copyright protection in photography in the United States. Um, you know, so story. there's all kinds of little stories about, you know, the individuals that, that worked on this book, you know, were important in their own right. Um, mm-hmm. Not just, not just Squire and Davis. What, 
and before we get into more of the uh, you know, kind of, kind of like uh, what's inaccurate, well, yeah, you know, but but we just assume it's uh, uh, his, historically accurate. Um, you know, uh, what what are some things in the book that you think are uh, pretty accurate? I, you know, I was just kind of going through, uh, you know, maybe government of the priesthood. Yeah, okay. I, you know, I think there's a lot to that. Maybe the like Ohio uh, has ten thousand mounds, um, the dense population. Yeah, uh, there's probably a lot to that. You know, do, do you agree with some of those um, assessments from 170 years ago? You know, were there some things they were right about? Um, certainly in the second half of the book, uh, the evaluations of the artifacts that they had collected. Okay. They sort of uh, th- that was all based on Davis's work, and Davis uh, was pretty meticulous in piecing back together the broken uh, effigy pipes that they found at Mound City, um, piecing together and classifying and categorizing the different kinds of artifacts that they found. And much of what he wrote and categorized became the initial basis for how archaeologists began talking about this stuff. Um, And so it kind of set the initial parameters, for lack of a better term, or the initial paradigm for discussing, you know, the way in which the usage of, you know, different kinds of artifacts were were considered and thought of. And not much of that has changed, to be honest. Um, there might be, you know, minor details here and there that have changed. Oh, right. But for the most part, the way in which they talk about those artifacts is still largely the same today. Yeah, what has What is different... Um, is the conclusions that they made at the end of the book um, have largely not held up over time, partly due to the fact that they did not understand the timescales involved. Right, yeah. And they did not consider that there could be migrations of people during those periods of time. Squire and Davis had some inkling that you could possibly use the counting of tree rings as a way to date uh, certain places, and that was not their idea. Um, uh, Those ideas came earlier than them. Um, There were the first tree ring studies associated with earthworks um, came from when the Ohio company arrived at Marietta and they began looking at the earthworks in Marietta, they did the first tree ring counting and they established that, well, these things appear to be at least eight to eight, 800 to a thousand years old. 
and and if they were there before the, these trees, that we don't know how much older they could be, but they're at least that old. And uh, you know, the work by uh, Samuel Hildreth and Marietta and Dr. John Locke in Cincinnati, they also did this kind of tree ring analysis, um, but their work was used by Squire and Davis. So they did not really understand the extreme time frames involved. We know today that many of the mounds and earthworks in Squire and Davis, uh, you know, in their in ancient monuments in Mississippi Valley, are anywhere from, you know, a thousand BC to uh, you know, sixteen hundred AD, a pretty long time frame that mound sites have been dated throughout that entire time frame. Um, most of the major earthwork sites that Squire and Davis looked at are generally between 0 AD and 500 AD. Um, most of the Hopewellian era construction is, is a pretty big chunk of their book, partly because they're from Chillicothe, and that's where a big concentration of those mounds were located. So there are certain things that, that – stand up and then there are other things that you know now modern archaeologists mm -hmm. you know kind of run down because they don't understand the time frame in which these guys were working uh but one yeah, of the you know, one of the interesting conclusions that they they modern archaeology does not agree with um squire and davis believed that um that they're, they're, because of the things that they were seeing in terms of the artifacts that they were finding, they believed that there must have been at least some kind of influence by the more sophisticated prehistoric cultures in uh, Mexico and Central America, meaning the Aztecs, the Mayans, the uh -huh. uh, you know Olmec. Those those different cultures really hadn't been sorted out and hadn't been identified at the time that Squire and Davis were. They knew that these things were existing down there, and and reports were coming back and illustrations were coming back of those places. And they thought, well, that's more sophisticated than what we're seeing here, but there seems to be you know some similar you know iconography, and so it, they must they must have been influenced by the people down there because that culture is more sophisticated. They did not see any barrier that would have prevented people in Mexico to come up here because there is none, right? There, mm -hmm. there, that people can just walk from there or they can get in a boat and, and sail around the Gulf and up the Mississippi and come here. There is no physical barrier to prevent any, anybody down there from moving up here. Um, but, you know, modern archaeologists, uh, you know, they basically built Trump's wall a long time ago. And they have declared that, you know, there was no uh, no one from Mexico that ever came up into the continental United States. It's like ludicrous. Um, so that assessment by them, although the physical evidence for that has not really uh, examined – uh, their idea for that seems to be, uh, you know, still a valid hypothesis. Whether or not it can be proved or not, no one has really attempted that at this point. Okay, well, you know, when you know, we were kicking around some ideas about 
how to structure maybe a few segments of uh, our talk. You know, there is the uh, Lisa Mills uh, DNA test from uh, what the Hopewell Mound Group and uh, some of the other burials in the Chillicothe area. So they would, Squire and Davis and their crew would have encountered some of the uh, Hopewell burials. What? Yes, they, they excavated at the Hopewell Earthworks site, which is the site that um, several decades later, um, the Ohio Historical Society sent, uh, you know, some, some people to re-excavate. Um, most of the excavations of the Hopewell Earthworks site outside of Chilcothy were excavated by um, they, they basically uh, hired an archaeologist by the name of uh, Warren K. Moorhead to excavate for the Chicago World's Fair or the World Columbian Exposition in 1893. So in the year prior to that, he went to that site and excavated there and excavated about 400,000 artifacts from that site. Much of that is in the collection of the Chicago Field Museum today. But a couple of decades after Moorhead's excavations in the 1890s, the Ohio Historical Society went there and re-excavated, and they excavated a bunch of mounds, and they ended up collecting a number of skeletal remains. Those remains, about 26 to 28 people, I can't remember the exact number, um, were subjected to some DNA analysis by a doctoral student at Ohio State University over 20 years ago. Lisa Mills was her name. She wrote her doctoral thesis on doing the DNA analysis of, of these 20-some people from, from the Hopewell culture site. And her goal was to try to determine, or one of the goals, I should say, is to try to determine uh, if there were any particular descendant tribes that she could link these people to. So, you know, there are a number of, of tribes that lived in Ohio during the historic era when uh, white settlers first began arriving. Um, in the south-central part of Ohio, the Shawnee were somewhat dominant. The Miami were around. The Delaware, you have the Seneca, the Wyandotte, a bunch of different tribes. And she was attempting to try to find which tribe would have been the descendant population. Not only was she not able to establish a descendant Native American population, um, she also attempted to try to determine whether or not the people that were buried at the Hopewell site were, were uh, related to a later prehistoric population in Ohio known as the Fort Ancient. They, they began around 1100 A.D. and maybe practiced their lifestyle up into the 1600s. 
And so she attempted to try to link the Hope Well, which were around from about 0 AD to about 500 AD, with this later Fort Ancient population, determined that those two populations were different DNA-wise. They were not related to one another. She attempted to find, you know, even later historical tribes linked to the DNA of the Hopewell and could not establish that. The closest tribe DNA-wise to the Hopewell was the Iowa tribe in now uh, what would be uh, the state of Iowa was where their historic, uh, you know, um, kind of uh, lands were, were were in the Homeland. state of Iowa today. So um, the closest DNA match that she was able to determine was one of the individuals had a particular DNA mutation that uh, she found descended to one of the burials that was found in Mound 72 in Cahokia, which is in Illinois. And the burial at Cahokia was about a thousand years after the burial at Hopewell. So, you know, in the 1200s, you know, uh, AD. So there's some, you know, and, and these studies were really early DNA studies for, for prehistoric peoples in the United States. You know, this happened over 20 years ago. There have not really been extensive DNA studies since. Lisa Mills' study stands pretty much alone. And that has to do with the way in which um, the tribes have exerted their, uh, their rights under the, the federal government's uh, Native American Graves and Repatriation Act which was signed in the, into law in the early 90s, which is meant to take these prehistoric burials that are in collections of institutions around the country and return them back to the tribes for reburial. The idea is, you know, uh, people are not property, yet all of these institutions um, – like the Ohio History Connection or their their named predecessor, the Ohio Historical Society, when they excavated these mounds, they put them into their collections and have treated them as property. They list them on their P and L balance sheets, you know, for their corporations, and uh, you know they they have a monetary value associated with them, and so on and so forth. And and people thought, no, we can't we can't have that, uh, you know. Corporations can't own people, dead or alive. And so the idea was to repatriate them for reburial. And so rather than do these scientific studies on these prehistoric individuals and then return them to the tribes, um, the tribes are saying, no, you can't even do any of these scientific studies. You can't do carbon dating. You can't do DNA you just have to return them, and we're going to rebury them, and we're not going to collect any of that information. And so it's, it's kind of paralyzed the archaeological community from that standpoint. They're not getting any additional scientific data of any of these prehistoric individuals any longer. Um, and it's, you know, set the, 
the you know study of archaeology into a, essentially a black hole in the United States. You know, places like Harvard and Stanford have advanced DNA studies programs, and they are doing DNA studies of of prehistoric peoples all around the world. You know, they have very, very good detailed analysis of the migrations and settlements of prehistoric peoples in South America and in Canada and all across, you know, Europe and Asia, and they're not working on Africa now. And, uh, and then in the United States, it's just a black hole. There is nothing because the tribes refuse to allow that kind of study. Um, so it's, you know, th- those questions about, you know, defendant populations under the law, it doesn't matter. Uh, the way the law reads is that whoever essentially the last tribe that inhabited that area before they gave it up under a treaty uh, is the one that becomes the consulting tribe for repatriation. Uh, it doesn't matter how far back you go, whether or not they're actually connected to the prehistoric peoples that they're, they're you know, exerting their, their rights over. It just does not matter. The, the case law is pretty clear. Um, so Squire and Davis had no idea about those kinds of things. Like I said, they, there was no DNA studies back then. DNA wasn't even a, you know, a, a figment in anybody's imagination back then. Um, and the same thing with, you know, carbon dating analysis, all that's done, you know, with mass spectrometers and all that kind of stuff. So the, the real advanced scientific studies, you know, they had no clue over um, when they, when they were writing, but still to this day, you know, some of their, their ideas and their notions are, are, you know, just as relevant today. And clearly their maps of the mounds, you know, preserved uh, information that mm-hmm. of these earthworks that no longer exist, you know, so. Okay. It, um, let's see. What what else can we get into? So, so you're going to um, – or, or going through a lot of these books to uh, prep for uh, you, you, you know, adding to the original edition. And one of the really uh, interesting aspects of studying this time period is a, a lot of these um, other scientists. Um, I, I've really gotten into uh, their their observations um so some of the people really uh what they uh, uh wrote in, you know in say Al Waters case uh 200 years ago um so some of their work is still um being used by um you know, say the frackers uh you know, it was some of um i see white's uh analysis of coal fields mm. uh from like the eighteen nineties um right. 
and, well, and you have of, uh, some of the early geologists. Um, Newberry, eighteen thirties was the first Ohio Geological Survey, eighteen thirty-seven, eighteen thirty-eight, and three of the four principal members that were hired to do the geological map of the state of Ohio, Charles Whittlesley, Samuel Hildreth, and John Locke, were were all um, not just members of the Ohio Geological Survey, but Hildreth and Locke were medical doctors. Whittlesley was a geologist, um, and they mapped a lot of the earthworks. And in in the case of uh, Whittlesley, Whittlesley uh, was in charge of mapping the south central portion of Ohio, from Portsmouth up to uh, you know Chillicothe, and he not just mapped the geology, he mapped all uh, all the earthworks that he could find. He he ended up doing like about I don't know close to sixty different sites. And uh, the very first of the Ohio Geological Survey, they included Dr. John Locke's survey of Fort Hill, 1838. And all of that material was used by Squire and Davis in ancient monuments. Whittlesley loaned uh, Squire and Davis. Whittlesley was friends with Davis, um, and he loaned them about uh, roughly 30 maps that they included in in the book. Um, Locke's work on on uh, Fort Hill and Fort Ancient wound up in the book. Uh, Hildreth's work on the Plains Mound and uh, and Marietta wound up in the book. All of these individuals got very little credit for the work that they did that then Squire and Davis just put in the book. Whittlesley. Um, if you just count up all the maps that are in the book of all the earthwork sites, uh, I think it's like 19% of all the maps in the book are by Whittlesley. Uh, Squire and Davis contributed 28% of the maps. 40%, a little over 40% of the maps came from James McBride, another uh, you know sort of antiquarian earthwork surveyor from the west side of Ohio in the Miami River Valley. Uh, he lived in Hamilton, Ohio, and so Butler County, Hamilton County, that area over there, uh, McBride and, and his collaborators were mapping all the earthworks on the other side of the state. And a huge percentage of the earthworks in the book came from McBride. Um, in fact, uh, McBride, at one point I found letters, which I include in the book, that that go back and forth between uh, McBride and Squire, in which McBride says that, oh, I'm I'm very satisfied that you're going to put my name on the title page, that he was going to be added as a co-author, and that didn't happen, it, but but Squire must have led him on, you know, to uh, actually do that, and uh, and so McBride kind of got screwed out of out of his contribution to the book. Without McBride's contribution to the book. The book would have been much, much thinner. I can tell you that. Um, you know, so there, there were lots of uh, individuals. You mentioned Caleb Atwater. Uh-huh. Caleb Atwater published, uh, uh, in, you know, 
1820 in the American Antiquarian Society's publication, uh, a kind of a, a book-length piece about 10 or so. They included 10 maps of earthworks, um, including places like Newark Earthworks and Circleville and several of the earthworks around Chillicothe. And, uh, out of the 10 maps that Atwater included, Squire and Davis essentially redid nine of the 10. And they don't even mention Caleb Atwater in their publication. They actually, Squire seems to have some kind of beef with Atwater, and so he writes around Atwater. He actually uses Atwater's, you know, map of the Circleville earthworks, uh, but doesn't mention Caleb Atwater at all. Atwater was a Jacksonian Democrat, actually, <laughs> and that may be where the beef came from. Atwater was actually appointed by Andrew Jackson to be an Indian uh, liaison with the with the Indians in Wisconsin when they were trying to negotiate treaties with the Indians in Wisconsin in, in like 1830. Atwater was, you know, a Jacksonian Democrat. Um, one of the biggest sources of of mound information that wound up in ancient monuments came from Constantine Rafinesque. Rafinesque died in like 1840 or 1841, something like that. Um, but his archaeological papers were were obtained by a friend of his from Baltimore, Maryland, the guy who began the uh, Maryland Historical Society. Brant's Mayer was his name. And uh, and Squire became friends with Brant's mayor, learned about Rafinesque's maps of the earthworks, mostly from Kentucky, um, and got Brant's mayor to loan him all of Rafinesque's papers. And he used pretty much everything that Rafinesque wrote about the mounds and the earthworks, uh, even though Rafinesque had died, you know, almost a decade before. Uh, all of that wound up in, in ancient monuments. I think about eight to 10% of all the maps in ancient monuments are from Rafinesque. And, and uh, he sometimes gives Rafinesque credit and other times he doesn't, uh, you know, so, but there's, there's really dozens of map surveys uh, that are in ancient monuments that these, these individuals got n mostly no credit for doing. Um, there's lots of interesting stories about some of these people that I uncovered, you know, um, one of the earliest um, maps that was that was uh, used by Squire in in, uh, in the book, the the original surveys uh, map surveys were done by a guy by the name of General William Lytle. Lytle was a land surveyor. He became the the surveyor general of the Northwest Territory, and he did a survey of what's known as the East Fork Works and the Milford Works. Um, those are kind of in the outskirts of Cincinnati today. And uh, Lytle's work, were, uh, he sent that to the uh, Philosophical Society in Philadelphia. Of when, At the time, uh, Thomas Jefferson was a member and Jefferson became president of the United States. And Jefferson was very interested in the mounds and the earthworks that were being reported in the West. 
in the Northwest Territory when he was president, actually even before he was president, when he was president of the Philosophical Society. They actually put together a program to try to learn more about the mounds in the earthworks. Jefferson actually excavated a mound on his property at Monticello, uh, one of the first, you know, uh, scientific accounts of excavating a mound in the United States came from Thomas uh-huh. Jefferson. Uh-huh. And so uh, Lytle sent over his surveys, and they got all interested over there. And um, th- there were so many people writing back and forth to uh, Lytle that he figured that, well, the best way to try to um, learn about all the mounds and the earthworks is to do a full survey of them. And so he put together a proposal uh, which they sent in to Jefferson was to have the federal government put together a team to map all of the mounds and the earthworks in the Northwest Territory. And Jefferson uh, determined that uh, at the time the federal government had limited money and limited resources and that they only had enough money to do one scientific expedition. And they had a couple of different proposals on the table, Lytle's proposal to map all the mounds and the earthworks, but they chose and selected a different uh, scientific proposal, which they funded, and that was the Lewis and Clark expedition. Talk about a hinge point of of history. You know, like (laughs) you could have had Lytle's expedition of all the mounds and the earthworks. Instead, we got the Lewis and Clark expedition. Right, which you know, obviously is more famous. Um, so Lytle's map were, you know, hanging around in the Philosophical Society of Ohio, where they were picked up by the ambassador to France, um, who was a friend of, of Jefferson's. And uh, this ambassador uh, ended up writing in while he was in France, writing about some of the mounds and the earthworks in the United States, and he included Lytle's original surveys. And one of these French publications, uh, Squire got a hold of and gave it to his lithographers, and they copied the maps of Lytle, uh, you know, directly. And uh, you know that's that's how far back some of the maps in ancient monuments go. You know, Lytle was long dead. That Lytle died in like 1831, uh, and yet his work survived um, and wound up in ancient monuments. You know, decades later. And it was you know, if it hadn't been published in in these French publications, you know, nobody would even know about it. So you know, I tracked down. A lot of that work, there's, you know, Atwater's work was published in German, uh, you know, several times. And those maps, because they were done by different engravers than the ones here in the United States, they have different details on those maps that were published in Germany, which I also include in the book. So I include, you know, publication maps. I include the German publication maps. I, 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 you know, did quite an extensive you know, comprehensive search for for stuff for all these original source documents uh, yeah. that made it into this yeah. expanded edition. 
Yeah, and one of the interesting uh, examples of you know, like the lithograph, how you explained the lithograph is really a reverse mirror image of um, the subject. Um, You know, you give us an example of the Liberty Earthworks, how when it's printed in ancient monuments, it's actually not correct. Uh, What the lithograph is more correct? Well, uh, oftentimes the, uh, you know, sort of north wind rose uh, icon, which, you know, geographers use to indicate the north direction on a map, that that wind rose is, is inaccurate. So it's in the wrong place. And so the, when people take the maps and they go out and they try to match up what Squire and Davis have to the earthworks on the ground, they, they might be oriented differently. One of, the, one of the most apparent differences in the book is actually the Dunlap works, uh, which is on the north side of Chilcothy. To kind of picture this earthwork in your mind, uh, it's – kind of like um, print, the way it was printed in the original book. It's kind of like a, a diamond-shaped parallelogram that has a pathway connected to a circle above it. And on the right side of the square-shaped diamond, there's a very long, elongated uh, pathway with a rounded end that encloses uh-huh. a little mound down at the bottom. And there's some additional earthwork things around it. But the, the, the parallelogram earthwork slopes from the upper left on the page to the lower right on the page. Actually, when you look at Squire's original survey that he drew out that the lithographers were using as their, their um, source material, the the earthwork actually slopes from the lower left to the upper right on the page. It's totally different. And so that is a, like if you're an archeologist and you're going to try to figure out where this earthwork is on the ground today, and you're following the map that's published in ancient monuments, 1848, you're going to miss huge sections of the earthwork because they're not, in the place that is indicated in those maps. And you see that over and over and over again from comparing what was published in 1848 versus the original source maps that were drawn by the original surveyors. Seriously different. They could be hundreds of feet in a different direction, additional mounds located that didn't make it on the, on the maps, you know, lots of, lots of details like that that are different. There, there are also um, – I, I, uh, inc- I, I found, uh, you know, survey maps that archaeologists have struggled over uh, from the original publication. One in particular, there is a – what they call a tripartite earthwork. Tripartite mean has like three major parts to the earthwork. 
usually these tripartite earthworks consist of two large circles and a square. And one of these, which was located in the city of Chillicothe along the Scioto River, became known uh, as the East Works by uh, archaeologists because it was located on the east side of Chillicothe. But Squire had a survey map of it um, in which he gave it, he gave it a completely different name. Uh, he called it the Station Prairie Works because uh, that term, Station Prairie, has a very specific meaning. Uh, it refers to the location where the city of Chillicothe was originally founded. There was a guy by the name of Nathaniel Massey that was the, the person who began the city of Chillicothe. And his original uh, location, um, they built a little blockhouse uh, that was on a prairie alongside the, the river, and they called that uh, Prairie Station. And then the prairie that it was on later became known as the Station Prairie. And that's where these earthworks were located, was on the Station Prairie. Uh, and archaeologists have struggled to figure out exactly the location of this, these earthworks. But on this survey, this draft survey map, it gives exact locations and it gives the names of the houses nearby and how, what the distance was you know, to those houses. And it has mm-hmm. very accurate you know, survey measurements on it. Uh, and so we can take Squire's original draft survey map, which was a full page, and, and actually locate where those earthworks, you know, were located. Um, it, what appears in ancient monuments later on is that full page map of those earthworks was shrunk down into a quarter page. And so it lost a lot of the detail. And many of the maps in ancient monuments wound up that way. They were trying to save money on costs. It was Uh very expensive to make these lithographs. Um, The Smithsonian spent approximately $100,000 in today's money uh, creating all of these illustrations for the original book. And uh, and so partway through the process, they were running out of money. And so they told Square, well, you got to start consolidating. So instead of full page, you know, illustrations for each one of these earthworks, they started to consolidate them into, you know, two to a page and then four to a page and then finally six to a page because they just were running out of money. And, um, you know, that plays a role in, in the level of detail on the maps. And uh, so when you go back to the original source maps, there are full page maps with all kinds of additional detail that you never saw before. Um, and, and so I include all of that in the book. Okay. So it, and if um, the well, listeners are enjoying uh, this recreation of hi- history, um, aside from the Frogman conference th- this Saturday, you have one – uh, coming up on the uh, Wolf Plains um, uh, Well, I've been uh, asked uh, to give a talk to the Friends of the Plains Mounds organization, uh, which is in 
Athens, Ohio, um, and that is coming up on March the 25th, um, which is a Monday, Monday evening. Um, and uh, you can go to their Facebook page for details on that, uh, Friends of the Plains Mounds. Um, I'm also uh, going to be giving a lecture about the book at the Adams County Historical Society on uh, Monday, May 13th at 7 p.m. Uh, and Adams County Historical Society is in West Union, Ohio. And then um, coming up in June, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm the president of the Friends of Serpent Mound. You mentioned at the beginning of our interview here that uh, a number of years ago, you, I, mm-hmm. I did an interview with you about the, the summer yeah. solstice event that the Friends of Serpent Mound has been doing for, uh, you know, a couple of decades. This is actually the 20th anniversary of the organization of the Friends of Serpent Mound, which is a registered 501c3 nonprofit. And the Friends of Serpent Mound is going to be not just celebrating the summer solstice as they do every year at Serpent Mound, but uh, the 20th anniversary. And so we're going to be having a whole series of historical lectures about the history of Serpent Mound. And one of the lectures I'm going to be giving will be related to the book, I'm sure. Um, I'm actually, I think, slated to give like three or four different presentations um, on different aspects of Serpent Mound's history. Cool. Okay. Okay. What, uh, what seems to be so controversial about the Wolf Plains uh, map? Now, this so gives you some it, insight into, um, you know, modern archaeologists are finally getting around to using modern technology to try to map where the earthworks were located on the the plains outside of Athens. They, there was a series of circular earthwork enclosures um, that were on this flat plain. And as modern archaeologists are using magnetometers to try to locate you know, where many of these are, are supposed to be according to the map in ancient monuments, they're not finding them where they're mapped on, uh, you know, in the published map. I hunted down the original survey map that was used as the source document. And that was done by Samuel Hildreth from Marietta. I found that map amongst Squire's papers at the Library of Congress. And it is significantly different than the published map. And so had archaeologists began by going back to Hildreth's original survey map rather than using Squire and Davis, they wouldn't be wasting so much of their time by mapping empty fields uh, they would have, you know, maybe been able to narrow their search a little bit better. Um, so that original survey map by Hildreth is in the book, you know, next to the published original map, uh, you know, from from uh, the, the um, lithograph artists, uh, Soronia Major. So that that's the controversy, the modern controversy around that map is, you know, the archaeologists that are doing that work have been very highly critical of Squire and Davis, saying how terrible their maps are, how bad Squire and Davis' mapping skills are. Uh, you know, these guys didn't really, you know, know what they were doing and, you know, kind of criticizing their general overall scientific skill without understanding that 
that they didn't actually make any of the maps in the book. They were map. They were done by these these artistic teams who are artistically trying to copy and interpret the original survey maps in mirror reverse for the, for printing, not not really trying to be scientifically accurate. And so the archaeological community's criticism of Squire and Davis's accuracy of their maps is really unfounded uh, because they're not going back to the original primary source documents. They're using what was published instead of the original stuff, you know. Okay. Uh, Jeff, with um, the Serpent Mound map that's in uh, the book, I mean, you know, uh, it's it's interesting, but, you, you know, you can also go to the actual park and you know, see it. Um, yeah. You know, with your well, you can uh, see you can see the modern recreation of it. You can can, can say, um, you know, Serpent Mountain was excavated by Harvard's Peabody Museum in the between 1886 and 1889, and one of the things that they did during those excavations was that. Frederick Ward Putnam from Harvard Speedbound Museum first visited Serpent Mountain in 1883. They took photographs while they were there. Those are the earliest photographs, historical photographs that we have of Serpent Mound. And they show that the mound was very much lower to the ground than it is today. And you might think, well, how can that be? What, what, did, what happened? How can it be taller today than it was in 1883? Well, because after Harvard acquired the property, they sent, Squire, uh, they sent uh, Putnam back out there. He did a bunch of excavations in the mound, and then he, what he said was he restored the mound, and basically he scraped up all the dirt alongside the mound and piled it up on top of it. And when he did that, he obviously amplified the size of the original mound, Uh, well beyond what it was in 1883. Uh, But he also made some design feature changes to the mound, uh, particularly around the head and the oval uh, area that um, significantly changed what earlier artists had done and measured, um, including Squire and Davis, because they were the first ones to uh, publish a, a drawing of Serpent Mound. I went out and actually, you know, found the source document that that Soroni and Major used for their um, artistic interpretation of Serpent Mound, and it is uh, significantly different. The Soroni and Major map shows that the bends of the serpent are somewhat slight compared to how they are today. And one of the criticisms leveled against Squire, Squire and Davis is that well, they sucked so bad they couldn't map Serpent Mound correctly. Well, if you look at the original drawing, the original survey map that that Squire had done that was used as a source for the lithographers, it actually gets those bends much better. It's much more accurate than what eventually appears in in the final publication. 
So that's, again, unfounded criticism against Squire and Davis. But the uh, there are different details on the Squire and Davis uh, – Squire's you know, draft than what actually appear in the Saronian major version. And the Saronian major version has all kinds of additional – uh, you know, decorative details, particularly like all the rocks along the cliff and so on and so mm-hmm. forth, that don't appear on Squire's draft. And so they, you know, embellished a bit. And you, you see that uh, on many of the maps. I also went and found Squire's original field notebooks of when he went and actually surveyed many of these mounds, including Serpent Mound. And I include those original field note drawings of Serpent Mound in the book. Um, so you can kind of get a sense of what was he seeing when he first arrived? What are the details that he saw? And uh, those notebooks and those uh, illustrations I found at the um, – Western Reserve Historical Society in Cleveland. Uh, that's where the, that collection of material is located. That's where I also found Charles Whittlesley's original uh, maps and, and field boats of all the earthwork surveys that he did. I include many of those in, uh, in the book. One of the Charles Whittlesley maps, for instance, um, he spent a couple of days mapping all of the parts of the Newark earthworks in 1838 and the person who helped him at the time was uh davis the co-author of you know squire and davis writing ancient monuments davis actually helped whittlesley in mapping the newark earthworks back in 1838 when he was fresh out of college um and so whittlesley and and davis actually mapped each individual segment and section of the full, you know, Newark Earthworks complex. And so, you know, there are full page maps, surveys of little individual parts of the Newark Earthworks that, that had, you know, haven't really been used by the archaeological community at all. Um, I got, you know, permission to include those in my book. Um, at the same time, that there was an author that wrote uh, a was writing a biography of Charles Whittlesley. The guy who was writing the biography was a geologist at a, at um, I want to say uh, what's the university up near Youngstown? Um, I can't remember. One of the Youngstown of the State. Bat- not Youngstown State. It was um, uh, not Wright State. I can't remember what that some of those colleges are up there. But he was a geologist at this other university, was fascinated with Wilsley. So he wrote a biography. His biography came out before my book was published, and he includes some pretty poor photocopied versions of some of those maps of the Newark Earthworks in his book. But I have high-quality digital reproductions in color of those maps in my book. Um, so he got he got his publication out just before mine, but uh, we were essentially working on it at the same time. Okay. And um, uh, so, if you want to read about a biography of Charles Whittlesley, you can see some of that material. Um, he he makes a couple of because he's a geologist. He wasn't really 
a mound expert per se. A little bit of a different approach. Well, he, he did not include accurate information about some of the maps that he was looking at. Um, And so I addressed that in my book where he, you know, kind of went, well, he went sideways on a couple of things. But for the most part, you know, his biography is pretty good. Since we were just talking about uh, the Serpent Mound and uh, Newark, you know, with your astronomy background, um, Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, as we get uh, towards the end, end of the show, you kind of work in, you know, one of the conferences we attended, and you know, uh, uh, Hively and Horn were there, and uh, you know, they pioneered some of that archaeoastronomy. Um, yeah, you know, they certainly did. Um, Horn and Hively uh, were actually set out to disprove another person's work. Uh, for your listeners, you may or may not have heard of a guy by the name of Dr. Gerald Hawkins. But back in the 70s, early 1970s, he wrote a book uh, about Stonehenge called Stonehenge Decoded, in which mm-hmm. he put forward the idea that Stonehenge actually has these astronomical alignments uh, constructed within its design. He was kind of the first one to come out and and make uh, you know a hypothesis about that. And Horn and Hively, uh, by 1982 or so, uh, you know, ten years after after uh, you know. Hawkins' work had come out. Hawkins' work was incredibly controversial at the time. Uh, There were archaeologists that were incredulous about the idea that there might be astronomical alignments in these prehistoric, uh, you know, monuments. And so they set out to disprove uh, what what, uh, Hawkins had suggested by saying, well, we can pick any old monument and we can you know, find uh, find these kinds of alignments uh, just by chance. And so they picked the Newark Earthworks to do their study on. And lo and behold, what they found was, no, there actually are <laughs> astronomical mm-hmm. alignments in the, in the design and construction of, of the Newark Earthworks. Um, and so they, they have ever since been further refining and further documenting their findings about the astronomical alignments there. And they sort of kicked off uh, a wave of people who began to uh, apply those archaeo uh, astronomy methods to other sites in, in the United States, many here in Ohio. One of those uh, people is uh, the archaeologist Dr. William Romain, He's written several books about uh-huh. and, and dozens of articles about the astronomical alignments at earthwork sites all across the United States, um, and ones dating back to the very first earliest uh, earthworks in the United States that that have ever been uh, constructed, uh, you know, down in Louisiana. Um, and so, 
the, those ideas um, made their way to Serpent Mound, um, and actually the very first people to to identify an astronomical alignment at Serpent Mound uh, and kind of write about it extensively and publish on it was a husband and wife team, uh, Clark and Marjorie Hardiman. They were actually from Florida, and um, Clark Hardiman had done some astronomical alignment analysis of uh, one of the Florida earthwork sites uh, called the Crystal River Site, um, which is where the Crystal River enters into the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, the site is a series of shell pyramids, um, and he identified several astronomical alignments at that site. Then, for whatever reason, they turned their attention to Serpent Mound, and hmm. they identified the summer solstice sunset alignment through the head and the oval uh, to the horizon where the sun sets on the summer solstice. And that was the first one that was identified there. Then other people found other alignments, uh, you know, to uh, the other solstices and the equinoxes, uh, including myself. Um, the most recent alignment uh, that, that has been identified at Serpent Mound is for the winter solstice sunset. I identified that back in 2015. Um, and so, you know, all of the astronomical key alignments of the sun and the moon uh, are incorporated into Serpent Mound's design. And uh, so there's been, you know, a handful of us that have studied that for, you know, uh, since the late 1980s. And, you know, since we're talking about, uh, you know, Bill Romaine and uh, you, some uh, Horn and Hively have been looking at these uh, astronomical alignments. Um, Okay, yeah, that was an aspect of uh, the culture of... Squire and Davis do talk about, you know, there was a standard unit of measurement, and, it, you know, that would, at different times, you know, the standard unit of measurement would, uh, may help to get some of these uh, archaeoastronomy alignments uh, correct as well. Can, can you tell us a little bit about uh, you know the great circle and it was like a uh, thousand fifty feet uh, yeah, diameter so, so and Hively, uh, attempted to find a, a standard unit of measure and they settled on I think it was uh, one thousand fifty four feet. Romain, when he did his study of the Norkers works, he wound up with a thousand fifty three feet. Uh, and he found that standard of measure at a number of Hopewellian earthwork sites. Um, and so the, the challenge with identifying exactly what the, the standard unit of measure is, is a little bit fuzzy because of the fuzzy boundary of the earthworks themselves. Um, you know, where do you determine the end of the wall to be? Where do you determine? Do you determine the measurement from the center of the wall, 
from the edge of the wall, from the inside edge of the wall, the outside edge of the wall, what, you know, the, and so the methodology and the identification of what the exact measurement is, is somewhat fuzzy. Um, And that kind of can impact some of the studies that are being done. Remain subtle done, you know, a standard that was a foot different than what Horn and Heisley did. In the grand scheme of things, when these earthworks are, you know, uh, uh, you know, tens of acres big, hundreds of feet across, uh, you know, the difference of, of a foot here and there isn't that big a deal, right? <laughs> and And it's unclear whether or not they were measuring to that degree of accuracy anyways. Um, it's likely that they weren't um, because, uh, and Romaine and I have, have talked about this, you know, over and over and over again. Um, in my background, I, I used to teach physics and astronomy. Um, many of the measurements in observational astronomy are not done in feet and inches uh, or linear distances like that, they're done using degree measurements. So how many degrees out of a 360-degree circle are you moving? Are, is it, you know, are you looking at something three degrees wide, five degrees wide, ten degrees wide? And actually when you're measuring with distances like that, um, you can standardize those measurements very quickly and you can scale them up very quickly using degree measurements. And so um, we've kind of settled on perhaps the idea that that they weren't using that standardized foot measurement, but they were actually using degree measurements. And there's some evidence for this um, with illustrations from Mexico, um, whereby uh, you know when the Spanish arrived, they were sh- they were illustrating what astronomers in those Mexican cultures were using for instruments. And they were basically using a, a, a kind of stick measurement for measuring degrees in the sky. You know, what was the distance between one star and the other star? Or what's the difference mm-hmm. between the moon and the horizon? So that's all done in degrees. And so that might be the standard is in degrees and not in feet and inches. So I don't know if that answers your cool. question, but yeah, 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 it's fine. And you know, um, we have about five minutes uh, left. Um, I'm sure the audience uh, doesn't want the show to end, but they also <laughs> probably need to uh, pause to let let this massive amount of information to sink. <laughs> you know, you're always welcome to. Uh, you know, come, come back and you know, get, give us more uh, updates on things. But um, you know, in you know the you know, remaining uh, few minutes, uh, you know, is there anything else you want to uh, you know qu- quickly tie up? Uh, you know, get, give out oh, any if websites if or if your listeners are interested in the book. Uh, Ancient Monuments of the Mississippi Valley, the Expanded Edition, they cannot find it by going to Amazon. Um, I decided to not go through Amazon because I don't think that the richest guy in the world, Jeff Bezos, needs any more money. And so uh, I made it available exclusively through print-on-demand at lulu.com. 
but you can find links to buy the book. Uh, like I said, there's three color hardcover editions, volume one, two, three, and two paperback editions, volume one, two. Uh, you can find that through going to serpentmoundbooks.com. And there are excerpts available there. Um, you know, if people want to see what the table of contents looks like or, you know, excerpts from the book. Um, I talk about, you know, how I chose the color, cover illustrations and the historical meaning around those color cover illustrations, that kind of stuff. Uh, if they're interested in the book, that's where they can find them. Um, if they're interested in reading more about this kind of stuff before getting the books, if you go out to Facebook, uh, Serpent Mountain Books has a Facebook page, and I've got about a dozen or so excerpts and illustrations from the book that I talk about. Uh, there are different aspects of the book, historical stories that I haven't really covered here. Um, or you can go to the Friends of Serpent Mountain Facebook page and you can see some of that stuff there, or you can find out more about upcoming events for the Friends of Serpent Mound and that kind of thing. So that might help help your listeners, you know, find more information. Oh yeah, and, and you know, you, you have a great family event with the summer solstice celebrations, and yeah, this should uh, be you know, four days long. Um, so the solstice is on the twentieth, which is a Thursday. And so that Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that's how long the event will be this year. Cool. Okay. And it's, uh, it's all free to the public. Uh, our summer solstice events are always free to the public. So you can come out and not pay a nickel, you know, uh, to come in here. There's all, like, we have uh, uh, different kinds of, of speakers and, and events that are, are happening throughout the weekend. For instance, like we have a, a falconer coming in who is going to be bringing different birds of prey. We did it last year. It was a big, big hit. You know, you can you can uh, learn a little bit about falconry and, and see the birds up close. Um, cool. We, we have uh, the uh, Ohio Atlatl Association comes out, so you can learn about how to throw an atlatl and actually throw those uh, if you want. We have people that come out and exhibit their prehistoric artifacts, different collectors. We have, um, you know, food vendors, uh, you know, you can come out and have a good meal, good time, you know, lots of stuff. Music, there's a dozen different musicians that are going to come out and play during the weekend. and So it's it's a huge, huge event, and, and thousands of people come out over the years, so it's fun. Cool. Okay. Well, uh, we're just about out of time anyways, so you know, we'll just wrap it there. Okay. Thank you so, so much, Jeff. Uh, we'll Thanks get for the archive. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, uh, you're uh, always welcome to return. Uh, we will be in touch, and I just want to thank the listeners for uh, being there and supporting us. We will see you, uh, I think, next week. Uh, Dennis is going to return to talk about uh, – a uh, spring equinox uh, celebration at uh, America's Stonehenge. See everyone uh, next week.